0: of God's Word, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31, of course, at least a portion of this chapter is is printed in your worship booklet. We're actually looking at the entire chapter, all 55 verses this morning, uh, as we uh, see that Jacob, uh, having announced his determination that he wants to go home, uh, God tells him, it's time to go home. But we're going to find that this is one of the hardest things that he'll undertake. And in fact, in doing these hard things, God actually meets us in the midst of doing hard things. Uh, Not just Jacob, but us too. And when God calls us to do hard things and and guides us into those very hard things he calls us to do, he promises to grace us, to protect us, yes, to guide us, uh, to give us fresh courage. It very, very well may be this morning that you and I need to hear the word of the Lord uh, in a very particular way uh, in our hearts and lives. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that for us. Why don't you pray with me? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do ask that you would take your word and use it in our hearts and lives. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and may the reading and preaching of your word be the word of God to us, the very word of the Lord. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear about the very real situations in which we find ourselves. And above all, we need to know that you have not left us or forsaken us. You are with us, and you are the one who is doing your work in the midst of what we are facing. Lord, please do this kind of work in our hearts and lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading this morning will be the first 21 verses uh, of the chapter. So, beginning in chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripes. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and molted. Then the angel of of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever god has said to you do so jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels he drove away all his livestock all his property that he had gained the livestock in his possession that he had acquired and Badan Aram uh, to go to the land of Canaan to his father jacob excuse me to his father isaac laban had gone to shear his sheep and rachel stole her father's household gods and jacob tricked laban Armean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 2008, two homeschool boys, twins actually, Alex and Brett Harris, wrote a little book called do hard things. And in that little book, they argued that uh, adults had wittingly, unwittingly communicated to teenagers that adolescence was a time for low expectations and for spiritual laziness and for cruise control before adulthood. And in contrast, the Harris twins believed that teenagers could do all sorts of amazing things if they'd be willing to do hard things. Like Stepping outside of your comfort zone, or standing up against the crowd, or or doing things that don't immediately pay off. And these guys have lived it out. At 17, they were actually the the youngest people to serve as clerks for the Alabama State Supreme Court. And later, um, uh, one of the twins actually went to Harvard Law School after he graduated from college, and the other twin went to Reformed Theological Seminary. But beyond the twins and beyond what their book actually says, I've always been struck by the title. I've always been, been struck by the simple concept that it communicates. Do hard things. Because, you know, truth be told, we don't like doing hard things. That's why we don't do them. <laughs> We'd much rather avoid hard things if it at all possible. Because after all, it's hard to, to be faithful to our marriage vows when, when the other partner is unresponsive or conflictual, or even worse. It's, it's hard to stay in, to continue to extend ourselves over and over again. It, it's hard to work our way out of debt. Whether it was our own choices, or whether it was circumstances beyond out our, out of our control, still we have this, this pile of debt, and it's hard to discipline ourselves week by week, month by month, to pay our creditors back and to chip away at that debt. That's hard. It's hard to give our best effort in a job we don't like, for a boss we don't like, with colleagues we don't like, for a mission we don't like, and yet this is where we find ourselves. And it's hard to grind it out and to give our best effort day after day in that kind of circumstance. That's hard. It's hard to tell our children no, especially when the things they want to do are actually good things in the abstract. And yet those, those things that are good in the abstract – when we actually try to consider them in the context of our family, they, put, they would put tremendous stress upon our marriages or upon our family system or upon our church life. And it's, it's hard to tell our kids no. It's hard to keep our membership vows to submit to the government and discipline of the church when we know that we've sinned because we don't want that sin to come out into the light. And so we flee corrective discipline because it's really hard to stay in and to submit to the elders being involved in our life. That's hard. And it's also hard as, a, as an officer in the church to actually follow the book of church order and to keep our ordination vows to pursue people. I mean, friends, it's, it would be much easier for elders and pastors not to get involved in your life. It really would. It's actually hard to do what we promise God to do. It's hard. To go and seek someone else's forgiveness when we've wronged them or they've, we've sinned against them in some way, whether we've gossiped or slandered about them, uh, whether we've actually been in conflict with them, whether we've said hurtful things, or whether we've been working behind the scenes to work against them in some kind of way. It's, it's hard to actually own that and to go to someone and say, I've wronged you. I, you may not be even aware of the ways I've wronged you, but this is what I've done, and and I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? Fred? that is hard. It's hard to forego our own rights in a particular matter in order to preserve the other person's reputation. It's difficult to let love cover a multitude of sins, to continue to love even when we might disagree with the other person. And there's lots of other things that are hard, really, really hard. And that's why we don't do them. I mean, we, we, we tell ourselves that we will be happier and we will be more peaceful if we simply avoid doing hard things and we content ourselves with the easier path. But, but what this text tells us here in Genesis 31 is that if we're willing to do the hard things, the hard things that God's calling us to do, God will meet us there. And in fact, God is the one who brings us to these hard things, And he is the one who works in and through them to give us life. To sustain us, yes, but but ultimately to draw us closer to himself, which is life itself. What was it that Jesus said? Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It very well may be this morning, as you hear God's word, that God is calling you to something hard, or God's already at work in your heart and life, and and you know that he's calling you to something hard, and you've been trying to put it off. Hear God's word this morning. God is at work in your life. He's calling you to do hard things, and he will be the one who grants you the sustaining grace to enter into those things, because that's what God does. That's what he's doing here. For Jacob, he discovers that God's working not despite the hard things, but through them as God guides him to do some really hard things. After all, Jacob's been with Uncle Laban for almost 20 years, and he has become incredibly rich In fact, so rich that it's starting to create problems with the in-laws. You see that in verses 1 and 2. It's the sons of Laban, uh, substituting there his brothers-in-law, right? These are the in-laws, his brothers-in-law. The sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. That is, Jacob has taken our inheritance. Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And then verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So this is getting complicated. This is getting difficult. Those of us who have struggled with in-law situations, we know how uncomfortable this can be. And yet... It would be much easier for Jacob to stay where he is in this situation than to do something else. Because here's the fact of the matter. He's killing it financially. We saw that at the end of the last section. He is teeming with livestock and flocks. He has this large household staff taking care of anything. Why would he leave all of that? Why would he set out and, and decide to go somewhere else? I mean, this is the context For the hard thing that God calls him to do. And what was the hard thing? Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. And I will be with you. Now. We need to remember this is more than God simply saying. Hey. Jacob. It's time to go back to the home place. I mean. It's more than that because, of course, he's leaving where he's been for 20 years where he's built all this wealth. But, but remember who's back at the home place? Oh, that's right. Esau's back at the home place. Last time Jacob and Esau were together, Esau wanted to kill him. Kill him because he stole his birthright, because he stole his blessing, because he basically ruined his life. And so going back to the home place meant confronting that painful situation. And Jacob had to be wondering, would Esau even receive me again? Or will he try to kill me? Was he still holding a grudge? Who else is back in the home place? Oh, his dad, Isaac. Last time Jacob had had a significant interaction with Isaac, he had lied to him. Deceived him. Betrayed him with that lying and and deceit. Would Isaac receive him? Would he he be holding a grudge? Had had Isaac and, and Esau been talking about what had happened 20 years ago for all of this time? This is a hard thing that God is asking Jacob to do, and yet God's the one who's guiding him to do it, to leave a place that while toxic offered relative security to step out in obedience to God, to go back to the place where Last he knew his family wanted to kill him, that's a hard thing. So so why does Jacob agree to do it? Why does Jacob think that, okay, this is a good idea? Well, you get a sense of it as we read verses 4 to 13 together. But the key verse, the heart of it all, is actually in verse 5. In verse 5, uh, he says, uh, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but... The God of my father has been with me. Why does Jacob agree to do this? Because God tells him to go and says, I will be with you. And Jacob, as he reflects on the word of God, says, yes, that's true. God has been with me all along. And so he's trusting the fact that God, the God who's guiding him to do this hard thing, will be the God who, who will continue to be with him. As Jacob lays out Laban's attitude towards him. We hear his grievances. He says in verse 7 that your father's cheated me by changing my wages ten times. And yet, through it all, God has not allowed him to harm me. In fact, God demonstrated that he was with Jacob by by prospering him. The angel of the Lord comes and, and tells him that very thing. Now, the last time we saw Jacob encountering the angel of the Lord it's at Bethel he's one man 20 years ago going to Badanaram not really certain how he's going to find Laban's family not really certain what God has in store for him 20 years later the angel of the Lord shows up again in verse 11 then the angel of God came to me in a dream Jacob and I said here I am and he said lift up your eyes and see All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Back at Bethel. Jacob had heard God promise, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And now here he is, 20 years later, hearing God say through the angel of the Lord the very same thing. The God who is guiding him is the God who is with him, is the God who is sustaining him, is the God who will make sure he makes it home. God's the one who's calling him to do this very hard thing. And when Jacob's wives hear this, they agree. They too recognize that Laban had treated them all very shabbily, that God had actually taken away his wealth and given it to them. And that decides it for Jacob. When do they go? When do they decide to go home? Well, this is where doing the right thing, perhaps in the wrong way, will create some challenges for Jacob. Jacob. Because it appears that they go at first opportunity. Verses 17 to 21 tell you that. Laban goes away to shear the sheep. A, a process that takes several days. And which will take, we'll take Laban and his sons away from the main pasture lands. And as soon as Laban's gone, Jacob puts his wives, his children on camels. He loads up his livestock and he drives them out of Padanaram, And they begin to head home. And as they are leaving... There are two thefts that occur, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. So the first theft that occurs is this theft of the household gods, these gods that were probably the size of a a man's hand. And Rachel takes these and takes them away. But there's there's a second theft. Verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean. If you have an ESV Bible, right beside that word trick, there's a little footnote. And if you look down at the bottom, it says in Hebrew that word trick stands for stole the heart of. So Rachel stole the household gods, but Jacob stole Laban's heart. He stole his, if you will, his daughters, his grandchildren. High-tailed it out of town without even saying goodbye. As I say, these thefts are going to create some difficulty for Jacob and his family, but, but the family is set out. God has called them to do a very hard thing, and Jacob has obeyed. But I wonder this morning, what hard thing has God been calling you to do? Surely he has. Perhaps it's a hard thing in relationship to another person. Perhaps it's your spouse. Perhaps it's your child, your parent. Perhaps it's a coworker, a fellow church member where you have sinned against them in some real way. And God has been putting it on your heart and dealing with you in your conscience and you know you need to go and apologize and you need to revisit the past. And that's really, really hard. And yet God's calling you to do it. He's guiding you to do it. Perhaps there's some some sin that you have not yet put to death and you you've been comfortable with it you've nourished it perhaps you've done so in secret perhaps it's your anger and rage or a deep bitterness that you've been holding on to or perhaps it's some kind of gossip and slander or lying about somebody else or perhaps you just struggle with the truth more generally and you're always shading the truth or perhaps it's your coveting you covet someone else's you desire someone else's property their house their their beach house, their hunting camp. Perhaps you desire their spouse because you really wish they were your spouse was more like that person's spouse. Perhaps it's some other thing. I don't know what it is. But you do. And God's been calling you to do the very hard thing of being honest with yourself before God about that sin and saying, I've been nourishing this and I've been cherishing it and he's been calling me to put it to death and I haven't want to, but this thing's going to kill me if I don't god's calling me to do this hard thing perhaps you're a teenager or a college student and you're here and you you've heard this voice in your head saying i you need to be doing ministry maybe god's been calling you to some kind of full-time gospel ministry perhaps uh, he's calling you to ordain ministry if you're a A young man, or perhaps he's calling you to a a staff position in a non-ordained way if you're a woman, or perhaps he's calling you to, to missionary service. I don't know what it is that God might be calling you to, but you hear this voice, this desire bubbling in your heart that's quite different from the path that you had charted out for yourself or that your parents charted out for you. And God's calling you to do a really hard thing. What's God calling you to do? As you identify that thing, one of the things you need to understand is that God's the one who's guiding you. God's the one who's calling you to do this really hard thing. He's promising that he be with you in the midst of that hard thing because what we find here in this passage is that God not only guides us to do hard things, God also guards us in the midst of the hard thing. Yeah, Jacob's done a really hard thing. He's left the comfort and security, even though it's toxic of his situation that he has with Laban, and he has set off on his way back home to confront what he does not know. And yet God has not left him. He's in fact guarding him in the midst of this hard thing that he's doing, and he's guarding him from others' rage. I mean, when Laban finally discovers that Jacob has left, it's been three days. It's going to take another seven days to chase Jacob down. Have you ever wondered what Laban's thinking about How furious he must have been with Jacob, perhaps with his wives. Furious about the past 20 years, feeling as though he'd been cheated, recognizing that Jacob had all his wealth, and now he leaves with his daughters and his grandchildren, doesn't even say goodbye. How did he want to take Jacob down? He goes out with this huge number of people, a kind of military endeavor. But he doesn't take him down. Why? Well, because God intervenes. Verse 24, but God came to Laban, there me in, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God intervened in order to guard Jacob from Laban's rage. Now that didn't stop Laban from confronting him. He did. And and undoubtedly the speech that he makes, which was false and insincere, had to have caused Jacob to grind his teeth. But listen, God guarded Jacob from the rage of this man and what that rage could do. Because murderous rage with a large attacking force could have led to seizing Jacob's uh, wives and seizing his children, which is actually what Jacob feared. He says that in verse 31 when he says, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. It was a very real option. And yet God was protecting him. God was guarding him from others' rage. God also guarded and protected Jacob from others' folly. In the midst of Laban's whining, he asked Jacob, why did you steal my gods? And in response, Jacob says in verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not Live In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have, I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen him. Of course, it was foolish for Rachel to steal these household gods. I mean, we wonder why. Uh, perhaps Jacob had not taught his family as, as much about Yahweh, about the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac as he ought to have. And so perhaps Rachel thought that the gods were somehow useful Perhaps she simply desired them because they were likely made out of silver and gold. And who knows if they might need that specie for some other financial purpose. We're not exactly certain, but, but it's pretty clear that these household gods that she's stolen, they're not protecting her. In fact, she ends up sitting on the gods. I mean, if you have a god that you can sit on, not much of a god, is it? But that's what happens to her, right? Now, Rachel had taken the household gods, verse 34. Uh, 34. And it put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felled all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. It's crazy. She's sitting on the gods. Who's protecting Rachel? Are those gods she's sitting on protecting her? No, no, the true God of the world is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, he's the one who's protecting her from her own folly, from her own foolishness. Here you see the mercy of God to Rachel, but you also see it to Jacob, because Rachel's not the only foolish one. Jacob is too. This vow that he makes in verse 32, that that the one who has the God shall not live, it was a foolish vow. It reminds us of the Old Testament in, in Judges. When Japheth, one of the Old Testament judges, makes a vow in the midst of the battle, Lord, if you deliver me from this battle, the first thing that meets me when I get home, I will sacrifice to you. Who meets Japheth when he gets home? His daughter. It was a foolish vow, just as foolish as what Jacob says here. And yet, and yet God protects him, guards him from this foolish vow. Guards him from his own folly. That's what God does when he guides us to do hard things. He guards us. Guards us from others' anger, from others' and our own folly. Even guards us from others' sin. I mean, when Laban doesn't find the household gods, Jacob finally unleashes all of the pent-up frustration that he'd been holding for 20 years. And in the midst of what he accuses Laban of, he accuses him particularly of sin in verse 42. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. If God hadn't guarded me, Laban, you would have sinned against me over and again to where I would have labored for you for nothing. But God guarded me. God protected me. He protected me from your sin friends here's something for us to consider as you think about that hard thing that god's calling you to do and guiding you to do and you know you need to do it and you wonder will god be with me will he guard me in the midst of this the answer of course is yes it may be that he guards you in the midst of that from others rage it doesn't mean there's not a confrontation but he diffuses their anger so that you're able to actually talk about the issue in play. Or, or he may guard you from others or from your own folly. Not bringing well-deserved consequences upon you. And you recognize, no, I deserve the consequences. And yet God in his grace and mercy did not bring them upon me. Here's a mark of God's mercy to me. That he guarded me from others' folly, from my own folly. Maybe that he will guard you from others' sin by providing for you, despite what others have done to you. Or he may guard you in other ways. We don't know. But friends, this passage ought to give you fresh confidence this morning that when God calls you to do a hard thing, he will not let you go. He'll guard you. He'll keep you. He'll protect you. And above all, he'll grace you. That's the last thing we need to see this morning. God... God not only guides us to do hard things and guards us in the midst of them, but God graces us through these hard things. For Jacob, the grace, the undeserved favor that comes to him, is protection. And the last part of the chapter, if you were to read it together, you'd find that, that Jacob and Laban make a military-style covenant. Uh, they set up a pillar at a place called Mizpah. And they actually promise not to cross the the dividing line represented by that pillar. Laban promises he's not going to come attack Jacob. And Jacob promises he's not going to come attack Laban. And this pillar is a witness that they're not going to attack each other. But ultimately, it's it's not the ceremony that protects. Not the covenant that they make that protects. No, it's the God who's invoked. He's the one that protects Jacob especially the God of Abraham, and the fear of his father Isaac. Just as God had promised back at Bethel, the Lord was protecting him and guarding him and guiding him. He's the one who will accomplish what is promised, even though it involves some really hard things. But don't miss this. Jacob still had to do the hard thing. It wasn't enough that God had called him to do it and promised to be with him, promised to guard him. No, no, Jacob actually had to take the first step in obedience to what God was calling him to do and go do the hard thing. Friend, you need to take the first step. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, that hard thing that you know God is calling you to do, you need to take the first step. It may seem as though the way in front of you is really, really dark, it may seem as though the light is not shining in, but if you take the first step to doing the hard thing that God's calling you to do, God will come with fresh winds of courage so that you're able to continue on. There's a great bid toward the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia. You might remember the scene from the Dark Island as Caspian and his crew on the Don Treader are making their way to the far east and they come to this darkness and in the midst of it there's this island and Reepicheep the mouse challenges them to do this hard thing to go discover what is actually there in the darkness and so they sail into the darkness and once the ship makes it into the darkness it's pitch black. The only light they see are the lights that they've hung out on the side of the of the ship, and as they make their way in, they hear a voice. It's one of the lords they're looking for. They get him back on the ship, and he tells them to fly because this is the place where dreams or even nightmares come true, and no one wants that. And so they turn the ship around and they start rowing as hard as they can out of the darkness, trying to get to the light. But they they don't seem to be making any progress. They've done this hard thing, and yet the darkness is enveloping them, and there's no light anywhere. And then they begin to worry they're never going to get out of the darkness. They begin to worry. They're just sailing around, rowing in, in circles. And it's at that moment that Lewis writes, Lucy lent her head on the edge of the fighting top and whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less. But she began to feel a little, a very, very little better. After all, nothing's really happened to us yet, she thought. And then there's a shaft of light that comes in, and it it actually illuminates the ship. And Lucy looked along the beam and presently saw something in it. At first, it looked like a cross, then it looked like an airplane, and then it looked like a kite, and at last, with a whirring of wings, it was right overhead, it was an albatross. It circled three times around the mass and then perched for an instant on the Crest of the gilded dragon on the prow. It, it called out in a strong, sweet voice, which seemed to be words, though no one understood them. And after that, it spread its wings and rose and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Drinian, the shipmaster, steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance, but no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice she was sure. Was Aslan's. It may be that as you do this hard thing and it seems as though you're in the darkness, you may have to call out to God, Lord, please help me. But don't miss it. The God who has called you into this, who is guiding you to do the hard thing, He's promised to grace you, He will not let you go. And even now, this morning, it very well may be that he's coming to you in the ministry of the word and saying to you. Courage. Courage, child. I won't let you go. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we confess that we do need fresh courage. As we do hard things, things you call us to do, Lord, we do pray that as you guide us and direct us, that you will remind us over and again of your steadfast love and your great grace and mercy for those who trust in you. Indeed, Lord, minister it to the deepest parts of our soul this morning, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In your worship booklets, you'll find this wonderful old hymn text, If You Trust in God to Guide You and place your confidence in him, you'll find him always there beside you to give you hope and strength within for those who trust God's changeless love build on the rock that will not move. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together to sing. receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Go in God's peace. Amen.